What in the hell's going on? What the hell is going on? What the hell is going on? <laughs> I don't know what the hell he's talking about. You don't have to know what the hell is on it. What the hell's the matter with these guys? We don't know what's going on. What the hell's going on? Who in God's name knows what it's all about? Hi, I'm Danielle Fetka. And I'm Mark Deason. Welcome to our podcast, What the Hell is Going On? Mark, what the hell is going on? What the hell is happening, Danny, is that Vladimir Putin has invaded Ukraine. (laughs) And at a time like this, we all really want to support the president and rally around the president. We all really want, I'm really pulling for him to do a good job. And boy, has the last 24 hours been disappointing. I mean, first of all, they started out by denying that it was an invasion. And it wasn't just like a senior administration official quoted in one newspaper. They actually had a conference call with a senior administration official who repeatedly refused to say that the decision to send, quote unquote, peacekeeping forces into these Russian separatist backed areas was an invasion. They said that moving Russian troops into Donbass, this is a quote, would not itself be a new step because Russia has had forces in Donbass for the past eight years. And they defined an invasion as something that would prompt a U.S. response as crossing into Ukrainian territory that Russia has not occupied since 2014, unquote. That became completely untenable and inconsistent with what President Biden had publicly said, which was that any Russian troops that crossed the border into Ukraine would constitute an invasion. So they had to reverse themselves the next day and say, yes, it was an invasion. And then you think, well, at least they'll now finally bring the hammer down and invoke serious sanctions. And instead, what they did was sanction two Russian banks and some oligarchs. And if you go any further, then we'll have the real sanctions. So this has been just so disappointing. And I don't understand how a president can just consistently, consistently project so much weakness in the world. So I will say, on the one hand, first of all, completely ridiculous denial that this was an invasion. I mean, the obsession with strange semantics in this administration is, I don't know where it comes from, maybe too much grad school. But the other problem is you are too generous. They reversed themselves the same day, finally decided it was an invasion, and then imposed sanctions. I understand that you don't want to use up every tool in your arsenal in order to address his invasion of the Donbass, these territories in Ukraine, because you want to have something in reserve for when he goes forward. On the other hand, the sanctions, as you said, that were imposed were just lame. And even worse, I thought, okay, fine. You know, they imposed sanctions on Russian sovereign debt, which meant that Russia could not, in fact, go out seeking further sovereign debt, which actually could be something as they're engaged in military adventures that might be hurtful. Only if you look at the fine print, that only applies to any sovereign debt after March 1st of this year. In other words, next week. I mean, damn, who is doing this? And on top of that, as we've discussed on this podcast before, and I encourage our listeners to go back to our previous episodes on this, the only sanctions that are really going to hurt them is kicking them out of the SWIFT banking system and oil and gas sanctions, right? That's what's going to really hit Russia because it's really the only thing that Russia exports. But The problem with oil and gas sanctions is that they're going to hurt us, too, because the Europeans get something like 50 percent of their natural gas from Russia, 40 percent of the natural gas from Russia. And Biden is really worried about 
gas prices are already up a dollar since he took office because of his war on fossil fuels. And so he's really worried that he's going to get blamed for more sanctions. So not only does he not impose oil and gas sanctions, which are the ones that would hurt him, but then he goes on this extended soliloquy in his speech about, he said, as we respond, this is a quote, my administration is using every tool at our disposal to protect American businesses and consumer from rising prices at the pump. He said, I am going to take robust action to make sure the pain of our sanctions is targeted at the Russian economy, not ours. What kind of message of resolve is that? What Putin hears is Biden is afraid to impose crippling energy sanctions because he doesn't want to be held responsible for driving gas prices up before the midterms. I don't agree agree with you. Nope. I think that one of the key signatures of everything this administration does is that they don't ever even think about what the Russians are going to think. All they care about is their domestic audience because they mistakenly believe that their domestic audience has no interest in foreign affairs, has no interest in America standing strong on the world stage, has no interest in standing up to Putin, but only cares about gas. Now, of course, they do care about gas, but if you look at everything else they've said, It's always directed at their domestic audience as if somehow the world wasn't listening. No, I don't think that they're thinking about what Putin is saying. I'm telling you what Putin is thinking when he hears Biden say that. (laughs) This guy is weak. This guy is too weak at home to challenge me abroad. That's what he's thinking. And I'll tell you, that's true, because you know what? If gas prices were still $2.50 a gallon because Biden hadn't launched his war on fossil fuels and hadn't unleashed the worst inflation in 40 years and hadn't created a supply chain crisis and all the different things that he's done, then if gas prices went up to $3.50, well, people would say that's pretty expensive. But if gas prices go from $3.50 a gallon to $4.50 a gallon, people are going to say, that's the Biden weakness tax. That is the price we are paying personally at the pump for Joe Biden's weakness on the world stage. If he had not withdrawn from Afghanistan in such a calamitous fashion and emboldened Vladimir Putin to do what he's doing, maybe I wouldn't be paying $4.50 a gallon at the pump. So that's what Americans are worried about. And so as a result, what we're dealing with here, Danny, is that they want to appease Putin because they don't want a crisis. They don't want to have to deal with this because they got too many problems here at home. Well, in the order of appeasement mode, of course, sending Vice President Kamala Harris to the Munich Security Conference. Was, Why didn't Biden go? Well, but just apart from anything else, I mean, didn't they recognize what the symbolism looked like? Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky was also at the Munich Security Conference, and he just ripped the Europeans and the Americans to shreds. Kamala Harris goes there. She didn't actually have an umbrella in her hands like Chamberlain, but she may as well have. The messages that they sent from there were so weak. I think the important thing for people to understand is, you know, we've got a lot of fringy right wing and fringy left wing people who are saying, I don't care at all about Ukraine. All right. okay, people, let's accept you don't care about Ukraine and you think we have no stakes there. Do you care about the Baltics? Because guess what? Latvia, Lithuania, and Estonia, all three countries with substantial Russian minorities are all members of NATO. That means we have a treaty obligation to them. If Putin takes Ukraine, what makes you think he's going to stop there? That will actually mean more. Yeah. Look, here's the reality. I mean, the good news is if you look at the polling the vast majority of Americans are standing with the people of Ukraine. I think something like 69%, there was a poll recently, 69% of Americans want to impose crippling sanctions on Russia if he invades Ukraine, which he now has. And I think 59% 
said that we should invite Ukraine to join NATO. That's a pretty substantive response from the American people. It's encouraging. But here's the thing. I think a lot of people are wondering, and I think it's a fair question, like, how does this affect us? Why does this matter? And I think the answer is that Ukraine isn't Las Vegas. What happens in Ukraine doesn't stay in Ukraine. As you pointed out, it could spread to the Baltics, it could spread to NATO. But there are other things. It could spread to the Pacific. China could look at our weakness in response to this and the withdrawal from Afghanistan and determine, hey, we've got a window now of a weak, decrepit president who's unwilling to exercise American power. This is our chance to take Taiwan. Let's go for it. And then the other thing that's really worrisome is what this means for nuclear nonproliferation. The reason that Ukraine is vulnerable right now is because after the collapse of the Soviet Union, they gave up their nuclear weapons. Ukraine was the third largest nuclear power in the world after the collapse of the Soviet Union. They had 2,000 strategic nuclear weapons, including bombers and missiles, to deliver them. And they gave those weapons up as part of something called the Budapest Accords, which were signed by the United States, Russia, Great Britain and Ukraine. And Russia, in that agreement, in exchange for Ukraine giving up its nuclear weapons, agreed not to threaten its territorial integrity, which it has now violated twice. And the United States and Great Britain committed to help Ukraine defend its territorial integrity if it was ever threatened. And so if we can't help Ukraine and follow through on that commitment, it's not a treaty, it's not ratified, but America's good name on the line, signed on the dotted line by the president of the United States, then no other country in the world will ever accept American security guarantees in exchange for giving up its nuclear weapons. North Korea is going to decide we better get that missile to reach Los Angeles as fast as we can. The idea that we're simultaneously negotiating with the Iranians for denuclearization while allowing Putin to gobble up Ukraine, it's completely contradictory. The Iranians are going to say, hey, I need a nuclear weapon too. And then the Saudis will say, hey, if Iran has a nuclear weapon, I'm going to get a nuclear weapon. Then all of a sudden, every country in the world that feels threatened is going to try and get a nuclear weapon. So this has global implications if we do nothing, if we allow this to stand. I agree with you entirely. And one of the things that breaks my heart here is, first of all, we're going to have loss of life that's completely unnecessary. But second of all, this is an opportunity for Joe Biden, former chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, the man who was brought on as vice president by Barack Obama because of his national security chops, to actually stand up and be the commander in chief of this country. And the fact that he hasn't, the fact that he won't, the fact that he won't use this bully pulpit to educate the American people about what is at stake here is to me such a catastrophe. The other point I really wanted to make, and I was just thinking as I listened to you lay out the implications of this is, you remember that piece I drafted about the similarities between the Carter administration and mm -hmm. the Biden administration. We are still paying for the weakness and the mistakes of the Carter administration in Iran, in Afghanistan, with the Russians. The legacy of Jimmy Carter continues to plague us more than four decades later. I think Joe Biden Biden risks having exactly the same presidency, unleashing exactly the same forces that perceive that America is not a power to be reckoned with and that our values are not things we will stand up for. And as a result, we are going to have danger around the world. I agree with you 100%. And I would also add, what is it with Democrats and red lines? 
So the last time that we had a Russian invasion of Ukraine was after Barack Obama drew a red line in Syria and said that if the Syrian regime uses chemical weapons against its own people, we will have a military response. And then he didn't enforce the red line and got the Russians to help him out of enforcing the red line. And it was soon thereafter that Putin decided, well, if he's not going to impose consequences on Syria, he's not going to impose consequences on me. I'm going to come in and take Crimea. And he did. And he was right. We didn't impose consequences on him. And now Joe Biden drew a red line again. I just want to read the words he said. Any assembled Russian units move across the Ukrainian border. That is an invasion. That is a quote from Joe Biden. So that has happened. He drew a red line. Putin crossed it. If he doesn't enforce his red line, and in this case, the response that he promised was crippling sanctions on the Russian government, then what credibility do we have left as a country? I think everybody knows the answer to that. We have a great guest today, somebody who I think is familiar to all of you, certainly even from our own podcasts, an old friend to both Mark and to me and one of the best military analysts there is out there, I think, General Jack Keane. He's a retired four-star general. He's the chairman of the Institute for the Study of War, which, by the way, is putting out daily, even hour by hour analyses on what is happening in Ukraine that are extremely useful. We'll put a link in for everybody. And he's also a Fox News senior strategic analyst. And before we go to our interview, Danny, a commercial announcement. Everybody, you know what we're doing here. We love our listeners. Thank you so much for your suggestions and your support. Please remember to share the podcast with your friends, to review it, to subscribe to it, to come and subscribe to our Substack, which describes it and has all our great show notes, because your support for the work that we do is everything to us. Here's our interview. Well, Jack, welcome back to the podcast. Yeah, delighted to be here with you, Mark and Danny. Look forward to it. Well, timing couldn't be better because Russia has just invaded Ukraine. I guess it's a minor incursion. (laughs) What the hell is going on, Jack? Yeah, it's stunning how Putin is able to do something and it creates, once again, the degree of uncertainty, paralyzes decision-making. And here we have Putin creating autonomy in two regions of a sovereign country inside of Ukraine and then sending armed troops in to enforce it under the guise that they're peacekeepers, but they're enforcers, and they're guys that are carrying guns. The fact that they don't have to fire a shot doesn't minimize the fact that Russia just took control of sovereign territory in Ukraine, and that's invasion by anybody's definition. And as a result of that, the Biden administration, if it wasn't such a serious issue, it's almost laughable because they're punishing the people in the region. We've cut off trade and we've cut off investment from them from the United States, when the people who should be punished is Putin and his thugs that surround him and the support systems that he has. It's an incredible sign of weakness at the very start of military action by Putin and very disappointing. I hope after they got a night's sleep that they put on their big boy pants and get on with this thing this morning or sometime later today and announce something that has some teeth in it. Jack, you said by anyone's definition, it's an invasion. Joe Biden's definition was, and I'm going to quote him here, any assembled Russian units move across the Ukraine border, that's an invasion, unquote. Have assembled Russian units moved across the Ukraine border? Yeah, absolutely. You know, his definition is very suitable. And obviously, they're not reacting to that. I mean, it's this minimalist approach that we've seen time and time again by many of the members of this national security team, which were certainly part of 
Obama's minimalist approach in dealing with uh, Russian incursions in Syria and certainly uh, Russian incursion into Ukraine itself and Crimea. So, Jack, obviously, we don't want to be in the business of trying to predict because we can watch changes happening on the ground. But funnily enough, we have a disagreement internally at AEI. And some of our folks believe that Putin will satisfy himself with trying to dominate Ukraine from these two separatist regions, Donetsk and Luhansk, as well as from his annexed territory of Crimea. And others believe that he's going to go all the way and take Kiev. That will be an undeniable, undeniable invasion and takeover of a sovereign country. What is your sense about where Vladimir Putin is headed? Well, we don't know for sure, but I mean, I'm just listening to his rhetoric and dripping with passion and emotion, almost hour-long speech that he made in the scripted National Security Council meeting. And you couple that with his July missive that he put together, some 5,000 words in 2021. You have to believe that what Putin is attempting to do is even much larger than Ukraine, that he's really reconstructing the post-Cold War boundaries in Europe. And he wants a rearrangement of uh, the security architecture that's existed. I mean, he flatly resents the fact that post-Cold War, the United States led an expansion into Eastern Europe, with so many of the former Soviet republics becoming part of NATO. And I see Ukraine and Belarus as being initial steps here and bringing them underneath his orbit of control. And certainly he's not going to be able to do it effectively by just securing the Donbass region or even eastern Ukraine, along with Crimea. He's done that since 2014. And the only thing he's got as a result of that is driven Ukrainians into the arms of the West. And he knows that. He's frustrated with it. I think he saw Zelensky as a lightweight entertainer who was able to become president. But Zelensky has stood up to him. And he actually moved his country much closer to the West than the previous Poroshenko was doing prior to him. And I think that has enormously frustrated Putin. I think he's come to the conclusion that the only way this is going to work is return to a Yanukovych-type government where Putin is having influence over the Ukrainian that's running the Ukrainian country. I think that's where we are, and he's going to use force to do that. I mean, if he could put enough pressure on the regime to topple the regime and get him to surrender without having to run tanks into uh, Kiev. He'll certainly do that. They're smart and clever. But I think the objective, the goal, and what he's about is he wants to control of Ukraine. And believe me, I think the vision is very serious on his part. He wants a form of retrenchment of the post-Cold War architecture, and he's going to pressure NATO in a way that NATO has not seen before. And he got the military capacity to do it. Jack, as we're recording this, the representatives of the Transnistrian Republic, now I'm guessing to myself that our listeners aren't entirely sure, or many of our listeners aren't entirely sure where that is. That's an area along the Moldovan-Ukrainian Moldova, border right. that is right, that is disputed. They have come to Putin and asked for him to recognize their independence as well. That really underscores what you just said, that his plans are much bigger than this. Do we think that, in fact, it's not just Ukraine, but maybe even Romania, maybe even Poland, maybe even other former Soviet-dominated states that are at risk? 
I absolutely believe so. I mean, I think the Baltics and Poland are really the issues to him beyond uh, Tanzania, yes, but that's insignificant uh, by comparison to what we're really talking about here. NATO countries that are protected by Article 5. And for those who are out there saying, well, listen, Putin doesn't want to have a conflict with NATO. He knows he'd lose any war with NATO. And I'm looking at him and saying, where have you been? I mean, I have played a war game as part of a congressional commission a couple of years ago with Russia taking the Baltics. They took it in somewhere around 48 to 72 hours, took the capital cities very quickly and denied uh, NATO forces coming from uh, an ocean away in the United States access to any of the arrival ports or arrival airfields, took down all the major NATO air bases very, very quickly from never even flying a single airplane across their border. I mean, it's quite staggering what they are able to do because they can mass forces on their border. This is their backyard that they're dealing with. The United States is an ocean away. And NATO requires massive deployment inside Europe to do it. And I also believe there's, despite all the backslapping and handholding in the Munich Security Conference and the description of unity, I was not there. I'm just reading from it and talking to people who were. I think that's on the surface. I think there's still weak need leadership in NATO, and they project weakness as opposed to strength, and they've got to get with it and recognize what we're really dealing with here. And their budgets alone are an indicator of their determination. The military capabilities that they really need to build are an indication of their determination. And the United States is sitting here facing two major powers in the East and China and in the West and Russia, and clearly returning to some aspect of a dimension of a Cold War. And we have a one-war strategy that the United States Defense Department is wrapped around. We can only fight and win one war. That's what we're budgeted for. And that makes no sense. And we would likely lose that war because we're not resourced properly. You know, the defense budgets during the Cold War around 7%. They're now south of free. And it's just grossly inadequate to deal with the threats that the United States is facing. And NATO is going to have to step up. The Europeans are going to have to step up. This can't be a burden just for the United States because of the threat of China and the resources that's going to require from our defense establishment. So one of the similarities between the Balts and Ukraine is that Russia claimed them as part of the Soviet Union, all of them, even though we never recognized uh, the annexation of the Baltic states. And Putin basically said last night in his speech that all these, quote unquote, former Soviet countries are really part of Russia. I assume that was directed at the Balts as well. The big difference between the Balts and Ukraine is that we brought them into NATO. They have an Article 5 commitment. So if he invades the Baltic states, we are required to come to their defense, unlike Ukraine. Did we make a mistake by not bringing Ukraine into NATO years ago when NATO extended that offer? And should we now bring uh, Ukraine and Georgia into NATO? Well, I think Putin would have reacted the same. We saw how he reacted with Georgia. And Ukraine has had a ways to go to be able to even qualify for NATO because of the serious amount of corruption. I don't think this is going to happen with Ukraine. There's too many veto votes in NATO among the 30 countries now. They don't want Ukraine and NATO because they're afraid of Russia and Putin. It's that simple. Should we have done I, it years ago? See, probably. Probably. But I don't see this ever happening while Putin is in charge of Russia. 
So I think it's important for us all to note that one of the reasons why Ukraine isn't, in fact, in NATO is because Ukraine didn't want to be in NATO. So, of course, you're both absolutely right that I think that NATO is too weak an organization, too risk averse an organization to invite Ukraine or Georgia in at this point. But Ukraine didn't want it. And that's the irony here. As you said, Jack, it is what Putin has done that has driven them into our arms. So here's the $64,000 question. What should we be doing? right now, before he enters unequivocal, actual sovereign Ukrainian territory? What's the right next step for NATO for the United States? Well, I mean, there's nothing that we can do now to deter Putin from taking more of the unoccupied space in Ukraine, or even from toppling the government in Ukraine. The only thing that would stop that would be U.S. NATO troops that we would bring into Ukraine. And that's not going to happen. We've had three presidents that have made that decision. And there's no preparation of the American people or the Congress for something like that. And that's the only thing that could possibly stop it. I mean, I agree with sanctions. I think Putin is willing to accept the cost of what sanctions impose on him. And he wants to bear that. And he's proven he can in the past. And he calculates, likely that the sanctions that will eventually be imposed on him over time will diminish as they normally are because people have difficulty with uh, enforcement and also the country itself is able to make uh, adjustments. And the Biden administration has a preoccupation with sanctions as a regime being used for deterrence. I'm not suggesting that that doesn't have purpose and meaning. It does. But sanctions are also used to dramatize the seriousness of the international violation that has taken place, the sheer scale of the sanctions demonstrate the seriousness of the violation. And also sanctions are, and that's how you can bring the international community together with a similar vehicle. And also they're used as retribution and punishment. They're not just used for deterrence, but there's nothing that we're going to be able to do to stop what he's doing, in my judgment. I agree with the Biden administration in terms of imposing tough economic sanctions, certainly on Russia and central bank and denying foreign investment and taking them out of the dollar system. And certainly all of that laundry list of things that we can do, I would also reinforce NATO. I mean, NATO should be alerting and deploying NATO's response force. It's 40,000 strong. It should go to the Baltics and Poland. And the United States, uh, I love my paratroopers sitting there in Poland. I mean, I used to command them, and I was one of them as a youngster also. But they're not much deterrent for anything that Putin has. And I think they should have deployed an armored brigade in there. And NATO has got to show its leg a little bit here, that they have determination and they have resolve. Putin is going into this believing with some justification that the United States is declining as a world power. And there are serious political and social divisions in Europe that have weakened them in the last number of years as well. And they don't have the resolve and determination to stand up against them. And we have got to prove that case to turn Putin around. During the Trump administration, the Poles proposed moving a permanent basis to Poland. They wanted to build, they called it Fort Trump. Should we be at this point, based on what Putin has done so far, forget even if he marches on Kiev, Should we be moving U.S. troops, NATO troops eastward in significant numbers? They're no longer any purpose to defend the Fulda Gap. 
in Germany. So why do we have all these troops based in Germany, a country that doesn't meet its defense requirements, that has made itself an energy vassal of Putin with the Nord Stream 2 pipeline and its dependence on Russian natural gas? Why shouldn't we move all of our forces deployed in Europe eastward into the Balts and to Poland and deny Putin something that he wanted, which was a pullback of U.S. forces from that region? I agree with that. I mean, I I think there should be a movement east. I don't believe in bringing the troops home, but I do believe that they should be moved east. I mean, there should be an armored brigade sitting right there in Poland for sure. You could take the United States European Command and move that also into Poland and out of Germany. I totally agree with this. Now, I do have a caveat here. I mean, we have a major threat with China. And we're outgunned and outmanned when you line up military capability against the United States and our allies. And we've got a long way to go to make it up. Europeans, the other NATO nations have got to step up here in a way that they haven't in the past. And the United States has got to put real pressure on them. We cannot bear all the burden in terms of increasing force levels in Eastern Europe, given the challenge we have with China. And we can't get there, certainly on defense budgets that's south of 3% of GDP. It's impossible to deal with these major threats at that level of funding. And look, we've got a 16% increase in domestic spending this year. We've got a 2% increase in defense spending, and it's not even accounting for inflation. So the fact is we have a declining defense budget as opposed to one that should be dramatically increased considering what's happened on the domestic side. Jack, you brought up exactly what I was going to ask you about. You've talked about the sort of the Russian-Chinese tactical alliance without reading too much into what the long-term implications of that are. How do you think that Xi Jinping in Beijing is reading what's going on right now? Is he reading this as encouragement to move on Taiwan, to step up his aggression? And as sort of a secondary part to that question, If we can't defend both the Pacific and Eastern Europe, are we going to be forced to choose or are we just going to give up on both? The scary part of that is you may wind up with the problem of both and losing ground and losing influence in both regions. That's the thing that concerns me. And I know we just cannot get there with the defense budget that we do have. I mean, we're racing behind right now. And Trump was right to go after the Europeans on the defense budget spending and also on real capabilities. It's not just about the percent of GDP. It's about real capabilities that need to be fashioned. I mean, look what we have right now. We have 190,000 troops surrounding Ukraine. Those out of the southern and western military districts are his best troops. And the ones out of the eastern are not. They're more of a hodgepodge. But he's got a significant amount of troops, and there's nothing in NATO that comes close to being able to stand up against that if he put that kind of pressure on the Baltics or on Poland. That is the reality of what we are dealing with here. And it's going to take some real determination on the part of the European leaders to get the focus that they need here, both politically militarily and economically to deal with the threat that Russia is imposing on them. And some of them are just going to take that as Putin's rhetoric. He's been talking tough for 22 years and just write it off and try to go back to business as usual. That'll be a huge strategic mistake. I think Mr. Putin is quite serious here about dealing with these issues that I think he identifies 
very much so with the Russian state. He identifies with this being part of his personal legacy, his personal history, and to correct this egregious wrong that took place with not only the collapse of the Soviet Union, but I think more significant than that for him is the fact that so many of the former Soviet Union republics became part of NATO and is now encroaching on what they perceive as their security and their rights to their own domain. So we've got to find the resolve, and that resolve at some point has to be expressed in the budgets of NATO and certainly of the United States in reflecting it. So, Jack, it seems like right now the Biden administration is hedging on whether or not they're going to impose these really tough sanctions, the kind of sanctions that would really cripple Russia, like the oil and gas sanctions and the banking sanctions, the things that would have a bite that the Obama-Biden administration refused to do in 2014 after Crimea. You sent up a warning flare last week on Fox News that if Biden does follow through on those sanctions and cancels Nord Stream 2, You said it's likely Putin would retaliate with a cyber attack on the U.S. and we would, for the first time, see cyber warfare connected to kinetic warfare and that this really has a potential for escalation in a way that could hit the American homeland. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, I think if we do impose those tough economic sanctions that Biden is suggesting, and hopefully he does, and it will have economic impact, I think Putin will likely reciprocate and he would target not just Europeans, but target the United States. And he's got the second best cyber offensive capability in the world. The United States is number one. China's the most prolific, to be sure. But Russia is truly outstanding. And I believe they would come, if we're hitting the oil and gas industry, they will come after ours. And they've already demonstrated what they can do with the colonial pipeline. They could do much more damage than that. And certainly if we're hitting the central banks, and he doesn't have a lot of central banks, I mean, Munition and Cutlow kept me informed about the serious damage that we can do there because they worked on it themselves, and we can do damage there. And because we are doing damage, he's likely going to retaliate on us with uh, offensive cyber. And then what will we do? We have eye-watering offensive capability ourselves, and I know that Cybercom has the capacity to fight back, and fight back they should. You know that they did very successful counterattack because you did the interview with uh, President Trump, Mark, at the 2018 election. And Mm -hmm. that was very successful. It took the attackers right off the grid. And the same thing happened in 2020. And we had the head of Cyber Command and the National Security Agency declaring the success that he enjoyed in pushing back on Russia. So, yeah, they have capacity. And I think this will be the first time we'll connect from the United States perspective, kinetic operations and offensive cyber, even though we're not involved in the kinetic operations in Ukraine, we're pulled into it indirectly because we're supporting Ukraine. And yes, and that escalation for the first time is something we haven't really experienced and is not a clear path in terms of what are the dimensions of what that all means. Can we deter that? His cyber capability, his offensive yeah. cyber capability, I mean, do we need some kind of declaratory policy that if uh, he does launch a cyber attack that we can trace back to him? What can we do to stop him from targeting the continental United States through cyber warfare? Well, I mean, we have enormous capability. We can shoot and kill in the cyber terms, the offensive capability that they're using. But we can also impose damage ourselves on their economic well-being, on electric grids, etc., And that's how you get into the levels of escalation and the danger that it imposes because, you know, we're in new ground here. 
we've got conflict operations ongoing and we have cyber attacks going back and forth. I'm presuming this is days and weeks from now. And this is a place where we've never been before, nor has uh, any other country been there on any level of scale. So, Jack, my exit question here. Increasingly, I look around the world and I get this sort of 1938 feeling. The Russians are talking about defending their ethnic compatriots in Donetsk and Luhansk, very much a Sudetenland argument, and even the argument that Hitler used when he invaded Poland, which is that all of these staged attacks against ethnic Germans that needed to be defended against by the German fatherland. But it's not just that. I look at what we're talking about in China. I look at what's going on with Iran and the escalation of their proxy wars against various people through the Houthis, through the popular mobilization units. I look at North Korea that nobody's paying attention to, that is also threatening more and more people with longer and longer range missiles. And I ask myself, are we at risk of a wider war here? You mean a war that you're implying a war that would spread across the planet like a world war? Is that what you're suggesting? I think, you know, again, I mean, nobody wants war. Uh, Nobody wants war with anybody, let alone across the planet. But there are so many threats right now. They're mushrooming across the globe as they sense weakness from the United States and from NATO. I really do worry that we could see a series of steps that may actually lead to a broader conflict. Am I just being nuts? Am I spending too much time on the History Channel? I totally agree with that. Certainly, China's feeling about Taiwan is remarkably similar to Putin's feeling about Ukraine. I mean, they actually use almost similar language in describing it. And I totally agree with the analogy going back to 1938 in Czechoslovakia, writ large, in terms of uh, Hitler's justification. And yes, I mean, when countries have those kind of ambitions and they're willing to use force to do it, even though they think... uh, the application of that force will be limited and will not lead to a major confrontation. We've seen the results of that from the past. So this is a very dangerous time for us. We know there's going to be a JCPOA deal announced here shortly. Iran's going to get a windfall of probably over billions and billions of dollars. Maybe it'll be like it was before, over 100. And if it is, we know where all that money's going. You just mentioned it, to the proxy wars, to Rockets and missiles for Hamas and Hezbollah, rockets and missiles for the Houthis, putting pressure to get the states out of Iraq, fueling the civil war in Syria, and generally destabilizing the region to their favor. That is still a very dangerous situation, and the Biden administration is absolutely setting us up here for failure with the rejuvenating the 2015 lousy deal that they're about to announce. And yes, I mean, Taiwan is going to be an issue. And certain President Xi, depending on how things work out here, but it's likely to work out to Russia's favor, is going to be encouraged, certainly. National Party Congress coming up in the fall of this year, certainly, where he'll be enshrined and likely be given another five-year term with the implication that he can serve indefinitely. And moving past that, after that enshrinement, I think we're going to see the intimidation and coercion of Taiwan pick up considerably. And one of the contributors to it will be what Putin is doing in terms of encouraging President Xi to take similar action. My exit question, do you think it's possible that Xi will look at our feckless response to Ukraine and decide, I've got a window of weak presidential leadership right now to take Taiwan and that 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 window could close in 2024, so I better act now? 
I had those concerns before Putin recent design on Ukraine that that 23, 24, 25 period is going to be a very dangerous period of time for him because he's got economic and financial headwinds that he's facing and the situation is going to get worse for him. And it encourages him to get this situation solved and to do it sooner rather than later. Yes, I think we're on a path for that. And right now, I mean, as we sit right now, the the United States Department of Defense is not doing anywhere near what they should be doing in terms of increasing our military deterrent capability in the region. It's pathetic that we haven't resourced this properly. I'm talking about with the forces and capabilities we have. We know we want advanced technology brought in to the forces as quickly as possible. I'm talking about the number of submarines, the number of airplanes, the number of ships, the number of ground forces and how we're using the geography out there. We should be building expeditionary bases to make the problem more difficult for them, as opposed to just the World War II bases that we're sitting on right now, all of which would be relatively destroyed by offensive missile and air power attack relatively quickly. So the whole region needs to be looked at and taken seriously, and all we're doing is talking about it. This is our pacing item. This is our priority. You know, we've shifted to China, the counter China, we're not doing much of anything to really establish an effective military deterrent. Well, that's just the kind of depressing note that Mark and I really enjoy ending on, Jack. So, <laughs> so, I'm sorry. In, in the hopes that we're all wrong and that we are going to step up and Putin is going to step down and that the Ukrainian people are going to have a little bit of safety and security in our future. Let's say thank you so much, as always. So illuminating and just wonderful to have you. Oh, it's great talking to both of you. Always enjoy it. Thank you. Thank you, Jack. So, Danny, I thought what Jack said at the end about potential for a cyber war with Russia is really worrisome. We have obviously failed to deter Vladimir Putin from launching a military kinetic invasion of Ukraine. And now what we're seeing is the reticence of the Biden administration to impose those sanctions. Jack is saying that if we do impose those sanctions, Putin could retaliate by launching cyber attacks against the U.S. to impose economic costs here in the American homeland. We need to do now when it comes to cyber, what we refuse to do in deterring the invasion of Ukraine, which is make clear specifically what the consequences will be of Putin's bad behavior. The reason he's invaded Ukraine in part is because the Biden administration refused to say, here are the specific sanctions that will be imposed if you do this. We will kick you out of the global financial system. We will close down your gas and energy exports to Europe and the rest of the world. We will cripple your economy if you do this, because Putin knows that Biden doesn't want to do that. And so similarly, if he doesn't think that he's going to get a massive cyber retaliation in exchange for a cyber attack on the United States, he's going to be tempted to do that as well. We have to restore deterrence both in the kinetic space and in cyberspace. I have limited confidence in our willingness to provide that kind of deterrence. But, you know, more importantly, I think people need to recognize that we are in a new era of warfare. I'm going to say something good about the Biden administration, which is unprecedented, but they have been very shrewd in 
messaging Putin that you are thoroughly penetrated. We know everything you're doing. We know all your plans. We've seen everything. Now, of course, responding to those plans has been another problem. But I think the Biden administration understands that there's an element of psychological warfare here. The problem for us is that we are not prepared to deal with the fakes that they keep putting out. One of the reasons that Putin said they were going into Donetsk and Luhansk was because of attacks on Russian nationals by Ukrainian troops. Each one of the videos that they put up for the Russian people to see to encourage them to support this war was fake. And in some cases, really sort of obviously and amateurishly fake, like the guy who lost his leg in an attack, but had already apparently been fitted with a prosthetic that you could see in the video. This is a new level of warfare. And I think that people don't understand it has real implications for us as well as for Russia. I appreciate the Biden administration's willingness to be tough on this psychological warfare you know, and reveal intelligence. What I don't appreciate is the fact that they're not telling the American people you could be in the crosshairs any moment. No, that's exactly right. I mean, look, I don't give them as much credit for all that because it failed and because it failed because it wasn't backed up by consequences. The way we deterred a nuclear conflict between the United States and Russia during the Cold War was with declaratory policy. We made very clear to Russia that if they ever threatened the United States, the American homeland, that we would destroy their country, that they would no longer exist. And we need to have similar declaratory policy in cyberspace. In this summit in Geneva, Joe Biden told Vladimir Putin that there were 14 areas of American critical infrastructure that were off limits to cyber attacks. I'm sorry. So what does that mean for 15? The answer to Russia is that all of America is off limits to Russian cyber attacks. And we need to make clear to Putin that there will be serious, serious consequences. Like Moscow will go dark if you attack the United States and attack our critical infrastructure. We will cripple your economy and throw you into complete and total darkness if you do this. And to give credit where credit is due, it was President Trump who brought these cyber capabilities online. He elevated cyber command to a status of unified command. He gave them authorities to conduct offensive cyber operations. As Jack pointed out in an interview with me, he acknowledged that he actually launched a cyber attack on Russia on the Internet Research Agency in 2018, covert uh, cyber attack, which was a demonstration of our capability. We need to now make clear to Vladimir Putin that if they even touch the continental United States through cyberspace and try to do something that would interfere with our electric grid or any impact on the American people economically or otherwise, that the response would be absolutely devastating. Uh, Inshallah, we do that. Last note I want to cover here, because I really feel like we gave it short shrift, is how central our withdrawal from Afghanistan was. Yep. Again, I think Joe Biden was busy. Let me say, I I was about to say Joe Biden was thinking, but I suspect other people (laughs) were doing his thinking for him. Joe Biden's senior national security leadership that was so desperate to pull out of Afghanistan was thinking only about their domestic political audience. They wanted to satisfy their base or in their mind, their base, their base, which, by the way, didn't give a rat's ass about whether we were in Afghanistan or not. But that's another episode. They were so keen to have that political talking point. They never bothered to think about what this would mean for our posture on national security. And of course, this was just a nail in our coffin. It really was. Nobody takes America seriously after we betrayed our allies, betrayed the Afghan people. 
and let the Taliban and Al-Qaeda win in Afghanistan. I mean, who would take us seriously? Why should Putin look at us and think that's a potent, serious enemy? You guys were beaten by a bunch of guys in caves. A hundred percent. And the combination of the Afghan withdrawal followed on the heels by the invasion of Ukraine, what message that sends beyond those two regions, across the Middle East, across the Pacific, the damage is irreparable. It's just frustrating. And I'll tell you, you look at Ukraine, they invaded in 2014 when the Democrats were in power, and then they waited four years, and then they invaded again when the same people were back in power. There's something about this Obama-Biden national security team that doesn't seem to put fear in the heart of Vladimir Putin. Whereas for all the people who were rightly criticizing Trump's rhetoric about Putin, Putin was, if not on his heels, then certainly deterred for four years. And he's not deterred anymore. And it's very dangerous, not just for that region, but for the rest of the world. He sure isn't deterred anymore. I suspect that this is going to get worse before it gets better. Folks, thank you for listening. Thank you for being with us. And don't hesitate to share your thoughts, your reactions. We're really interested in hearing. Thanks for listening. Take care. Let us know what topics you'd like us to cover. You can get in touch with the show by emailing us at whatthehell at AEI.org. Or you can reach us on Twitter. I'm at D. Pletka. And I'm at Mark Thiessen. That's Mark with a C. Please rate and review the podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe, share it, comment on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening to this. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.